Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, uh, get a Bible on your lap. If you need a Bible, there is one under a chair around you uh, to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a very short book that comes after the book of Judges in the Old Testament. It's where we're spending the next four weeks together as we walk through this uh, unbelievable book in the Bible together. Um, If you need to, use the table of contents to find your way to uh, the book of Ruth, but just get there um, with me this morning. And as you turn there, um, I want you to stay in Ruth, but I'm actually going to start by talking through another chapter of the Bible. And uh, where I want to start our minds and our hearts today isn't in the book of Ruth, but it's actually the very first chapter that we find in the New Testament. And so um, you read through the Old Testament. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, and then there's a little page in your Bible that indicates you are about to embark on the New Testament. And then you turn the page to Matthew chapter 1, and you are met by a genealogy, a really long list of names that are really hard to read and pronounce. There's something so intentional, though, for Matthew in starting his gospel or his uh, account of the life of the Savior Christ with a long list of names that uh, tracks the genealogy of this Messiah. Um, this is really important. Uh, the, 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 the line of the Messiah is rooted in Old Testament history, and so it's important as Matthew lays out, I'm talking about the Messiah, and to a Jewish audience, let me tell you, this is the one who was prophesied to come from the line. And so um, you, we might, in our day and age, find it a bit um, unique that the New Testament would start with a long list of names. Um, a shocking thing about Matthew's genealogy is that it includes the names of some women. That would have been a unique thing in that day. You didn't um, necessarily include uh, the women in a genealogy, but for Matthew, this is crucial. What might be more shocking as you begin to study uh, the events surrounding the names of these women, um, what is more shocking are the events surrounding the names of these women. You find the name Tamar. And listen, it is an R-rated story that I'm not even going to unpack the details for you right now because I would leave you all going, whoa, and you wouldn't listen to anything I said the rest of the sermon. Genesis 38, read it for yourself this week and go, whoa. Included in the lineage of the perfect Messiah to come. You'll find a name, Rahab, maybe a bit more familiar to you. Uh, The prostitute in Jericho. The one who um, disguised the Israelite spies. The one who was used by the Lord as a catalyst to begin the conquest into the promised land. Who then became part of the people of God. And oh, by the way, had a son named Boaz. Who will become very, very important to this study in the book of Ruth. Uh, You find, and this is fascinating. You find a reference to the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. But she's not called Bathsheba. 
She's referenced as the wife of Uriah. uh, Matthew is highlighting something for us. He's reminding us of the, the horrible season in the life of David, the infamous taking of Bathsheba from a married man, her um, becoming pregnant, from that would come Solomon, then David um, uh, moving forward, then David going and having the husband killed. And Matthew, as he writes the genealogy, is reminding us who the rightful husband to Bathsheba was. Included in the lineage of the Redeemer. And one more woman's name is mentioned. Any guesses? Ruth. Now you look at the other three accounts and you go, wow, there's some controversy surrounding the events of those names. What's the controversy surrounding the events of Ruth? Now, as we study this together, we're going to see Ruth is exemplary. How God uses this foreign woman to, um, uh, to continue the line to the Messiah is amazing. What's the controversy surrounding Ruth? It's exactly that. She was a foreigner. A Moabite of all people. And we'll talk more about what that means. Why do I start us in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that we find in Matthew because I want us to understand something about what this book of Ruth is all about. And the book of Ruth is all about this title we have given the series of Hesed. Uh, What is Hesed? Uh, Hesed is a, a Hebrew word we find all throughout the Old Testament. And hesed is a word that is really, really hard to translate into English. It doesn't uh, translate into English with like a perfect word-for-word translation. Um, We try to, in English, encapsulate it with a lot of words to get at the idea of what the Hebrew mind understood the hesed of God to be. But hesed is this. It's God's covenant-keeping, faithful, loving-kindness. Hesed is God's covenant-keeping, faithful, loving-kindness. And you see this as Matthew unpacks the genealogy to just go and look at how faithful God was to his plan for redemption. And look at how faithful God was to his promise to his people. And we are going to see this in the study of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth isn't ultimately about Ruth. The book of Ruth isn't ultimately about this awesome kinsman redeemer named Boaz. The book of Ruth is ultimately about God and God's covenant-keeping, faithful, loving kindness to his people. Now, in the shadow of the hesed of God, the faithful, loving kindness of God, we are going to see unbelievable hesed from one person to another. A faithful, loving kindness of Ruth to her mother-in-law. Faithful, loving kindness of Boaz to Ruth and Naomi. But I want you to hear me say it from the outset. This book isn't ultimately about Ruth, and it's not ultimately about Boaz. This book is ultimately about God and the fact that he is a kind, a loving, kind, faithful, covenant-keeping God. So I find it remarkable, and what we're going to see here in these minutes we have this morning, is that the book on, a book on the faithful, loving kindness of God is going to begin with a story of a woman's life being utterly desolated, absolutely devastated.
literally experiencing one knee-buckling knockout blow after another. When we come to the end of this section, we're going to stop it at today. It's going to go, you want to talk to me about the faithful, loving kindness of God? Where is the faithful, loving kindness of God? And so I'd say to you, if you're here, and you're already having a visceral reaction because of some stuff you're going through in life right now, or really a series on the faithful, loving kindness of God, okay, pastor, let's meet this week. Let me tell you what's going on in my life. And you want to talk to me? You want to stand on a stage and preach to me about the faithful, loving kindness of God? Yes. And I believe we'll see it in this story, and I believe you'll see it in your story. Act one. Y'all ready for this? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, a pleasant one. Remember that. Name of his wife, Naomi, pleasant one. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Stop. A Hebrew reader, upon reading just the first two verses of this book, would go, oh my goodness. The tension these first two verses create in a Hebrew mind are off the charts. The first thing that we read, in the days when who ruled? In the days when the judges ruled. There's this uh, period in uh, Israel's history from the time when like Joshua dies. So you have Moses and then Moses' successor, Joshua. And then when Joshua dies before Saul, the first king of Israel, is appointed, you have these days ruled by the judges. And now if you know anything about biblical history, just kind of vote with your thumb with me. Days of judges, uh, good or not so good? Good or not so good? Awful. In fact, Judges 21-25 encapsulates them perfectly. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A recipe for disaster. And it was a disastrous cycle in the days of the Judges. Uh, If you would read the book of Judges, the book uh, right before the book of Ruth, What you're going to find is this cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again through Judges. The people sin. God, out of his love for the people, listen to that. God, out of the love for his people, will judge them for their sin. They sin. There's judgment. There's the crying out of the people. Lord, this is painful and this is hard. Rescue us. Save us out of this judgment you have brought. And God, in his goodness, delivers his people again and again and again and again. And then there's peace for a time. Until the people sin again, and around and around and around and around, the merry-go-round goes of the book of Judges. When you read the book of Judges, you're like, oh, come on, people, like, get it together. And then you go, oh, come on, Brock, get it together. How true the cycle of Judges has been true in mine, and I can't speak for you, but probably your 
life. And so you have the setting in the days when the judges ruled. Now it's not so surprising for us when we come across the next words. There was a famine in the land. We're not surprised by that. This is one of those seasons in which because of the faithlessness of the people of God, he's judging them. There is a famine in the land. What is ironic is that there's a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem literally mean? House of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. There's a, there is no bread in the house of bread in such a way that um, this creates a crisis for Elimelech. Do we stay here, hunker down, hold out, um, cry out to God for deliverance, or do I move my people out of the house of bread to a place where it seems there is food? And he decides to lead his family out of the promised land and into the land of Moab. Now, you got to understand, he just walked his family into enemy territory. When Scripture talks about the Moabites, it's not just like, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, we're, we're good. It's not like us in Canada, right? The Moabites were the descendants of, I'm just going to say it, the incestual pregnancy of Lot and his daughters. And if right now, after already what you've heard, you're like, I've never read the Bible, but whoa, the Bible is unlike anything. It is. You've got to read the Bible, okay? The Moabites are the descendants of the incestual pregnancy between Lot and his daughters. The Moabites stood and denied Israelite, the Israelites' passage in the Exodus. When they were leaving Egypt, trying to come into the Promised Land, the Moabites said, you ain't walking through this territory. Um, just even, we see it recently in the book of Judges, the king of Moab was oppressing, was, was, was one of those instruments in God's hands of judgment on the people. Um, we have to understand, for a Hebrew reader, they're going, days of Judges, famine in the land, and this dude just walked his family into Moab. Whoa. This is desperate stuff. This is high-tension stuff. And the tension only increases as the pain is about to increase with it. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about how long? They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that, what are the next two words? So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I appeal to us to understand Naomi has just been devastated. This wasn't a hard decade. This wasn't like, man, that was a rough stretch of life. This woman in this day, in this culture, has been utterly devastated. 
displaced by a famine, husband dead, both sons dead, no male descendants. The, the writer of Ruth is trying to communicate something to us at the end of verse 4 when he no longer even calls her by her first name. He says, so that the woman was left without her two sons and with her, without her husband. In this culture, in this day, no male descendants. She is literally nameless and hopeless. I'm not talking about a hard couple years. I'm talking devastated. Have you been there? Not here. I mean, no one can relate to Naomi's unique and specific circumstances, but have you ever been devastated? I'm not talking about a hard couple of years. I'm not talking about a rough patch. I'm talking about one knee-buckling blow after another. And if you're like, I, I don't really know. If you don't know, you've not been there. Because when you've been to the destination of devastation, you don't ever forget it. The Lord heals from it. The pain can lose its edge. But the scar's there. Have you been there? If you're there now, you're in probably one of three places. You're either in this part of the devastating season where the passionate, visceral emotions are still there. You're angry. It's what I've already addressed. Oh, really? We're going to go four weeks. Four weeks on the loving, faithful kindness of God. Really? Let me unpack my story. Show me, pastor, the faithful, loving kindness of God. You might be there. But there's another tier of this, and that's when the passionate emotion almost begins to lessen, and it delves down into just despair and depression. You're still feeling but the feelings no longer make you want to just explode out in anger. The feelings are more just like, pfft. And then there's a third stage, and it's the scariest stage. You just go numb. You just don't even feel anymore. You're like, I, I, I felt so intensely, and then I felt so awful. I, don't even just, I just don't even want to feel anymore. And you're numb. Look at me. Look at me. Naomi's story is not done. And your story is not done either. All through scripture I find it remarkable. How much it talks about this God who sees he sees you, and this God who hears, he hears your cry. But I want to acknowledge that some of us, even in the room today, are there. And, oh, by the way, if we're not there and we're going, man, that's really hard for the people, I have to remember, I've never been there, 
Okay, I'll just tell you straight, I'm 32 years old. I've not been to the land of devastation yet. For those of you who have, it would be uh, incongruent for me to try to preach to you as if I have. Because you'll know. You'll know right away. Oh, he's not been there. So I'm not even going to try to fake it and act like I can. But here's what I do know about life. I'll live long enough in this broken, sinful world. I'm going to be there one day. How do we navigate that? What is Naomi going to do? Where is Naomi in this time? Um, Naomi, after a decade of devastation, is now going to go into just kind of pragmatic mode. Do what you need to do to get through the day. Do what you need to do to move on with life. But this is a woman who's been utterly devastated. And if you're there or just coming out of it or if you're like me and have to acknowledge one day we're going into it, um, there's something we have to see that's so powerful in the rest of this book. But what's Naomi do now? No husband, foreign land, foreign land, no husband, no sons, no male descendants. Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Rourke, a pastor writing on the book of Ruth, says this, Desperate single women living in a time of lawlessness have few options when it comes to work. In those dark ages, they weren't educated, didn't engage in commerce, and were often relegated to servitude or prostitution. I want you to try to get into Naomi's brain here to go, what are, culturally speaking, what are the options left before me? And so she goes to make a plan to go on in the pain of the devastation in which she's just experienced. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, for the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. The Lord has delivered. He's brought bread back to the house of bread. So she sent out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord show his chesed to you. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should, be, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to, my, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Stop. This is a verse of contrast. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She began brokenheartedly to walk back 
to the land of her father to stay in her home. And I don't think the writer of Ruth has any disparaging um, intentions of acknowledging that. In that day and age, Orpah makes the wise decision. And the writer of Ruth is not trying to throw her under the bus for it. But this is a verse of contrast. Uh, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth what? Ruth clung to her. I'm talking clung. I'm talking when you try to hand your 18-month-old up to one of those workers upstairs clung. She clung. Can you see it? Can you get into a, a Moabite field right now and see it? A grieved and numb mother-in-law with a hysterical daughter-in-law clinging to her. Ruth's appeals aren't done, verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And here it is. And your what? Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Stop, Jared. Just camp out on those words. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And oh, by the way, not even death will end my commitment to you. Where you die, I'm going to die. These are statements of chesed, faithful loving kindness from one human to another human in the shadow of a book all about God's faithful loving kindness to his people. And Ruth understands, or sorry, Naomi understands there is no unclinging this clinging. There's no reasoning with her for her to return. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So, two weary widows leave Moab. And go back to Bethlehem. So the two, 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. I don't know how that happened. Uh, Bethlehem wasn't a, a, a huge city, but no doubt the word had spread. Naomi was known in some ways, and word had spread, and, and Naomi's back. Naomi's back. The whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? Is this the pleasant one? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, 
Call me Mara. What's Mara mean? Bitter. Do not call me pleasant one anymore. Call me the bitter one. Call me bitter. For the all, look at what she attributes this to now. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away, what's it say? I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Look at these words. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. He has brought me back empty. The Almighty has dealt, um, uh, the Almighty has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Is she right or wrong to say this? Are these the words of a woman in whom intense suffering has distorted her sound theology in God? Or, or, are these the words of a woman who after experiencing unimaginable suffering is crying out to the Lord in the same vein Jeremiah does, Job does, and the psalmist do? Is she right or wrong to say these things? I ain't answering it. You talk about it at lunchtime. <laughs> and you talk about it in your small group. I will tell you this. A friend of mine from college loses his six-week-old son. I'm at the funeral up on Soma Midtown. And he gets up and he reads a lament to the Lord. One of the most raw things I have ever heard in person in my life. Full of questions. Where were you, Lord? Full of raw questions. of raw emotion. His finite mind and his humanity bringing his questions before his God, but the whole time never questioning the goodness of his God. What's the place of that in times of suffering? Jeremiah and Job and the psalmist and Naomi, is she right or is she wrong here? Where is her theology here? What she believes about God and what she believes about how God works. Is this the woman who intense suffering has derailed her theology or is this a woman with theology intact just crying out to God? You have to wrestle with that in your small groups this week. Why do you have to wrestle with that? Because you've got to be prepared for it when seasons of lament come in your life. That it wouldn't derail your theology. 
but there'd be a freedom to bring the raw pain before your heavenly Father. This is where we leave it today. This is where we stop the story today. Don't pack up, though, yet. I ain't done. This is where Naomi and Ruth's story is, but it's not where it will end. Out of all of that, out of all of that mess, we are about to watch a good and faithful, a chesed God enter into some of the most horrific circumstances that we just walked through in the first 21 verses. But even beyond that, listen to me, out of that will come a son. Stay with me. He's going to have another son. He's going to have another son and another son and another son and another son until one day a son is going to be born of all places, Bethlehem. The house of bread is one day going to produce the bread of life from this mess. God is so passionate for his faithfulness to his redemptive story that he takes a Moabite woman, he brings her back into Bethlehem. She has descendants leading to the Christ. If God is in control like that, sees you. He hears you. Your story ain't done yet. So I want to leave us with four questions to apply in our life from just these first 21 verses. Does your theology allow room for God and his sovereignty to use seasons of emptying. What did Naomi say? I went out full, but God emptied me. Does your theology, what you believe about God and how he works, allow room for God and his sovereignty to use seasons of emptying to accomplish his purposes in us Does your theology allow that? Because here's the deal. If you believe a false gospel, come to Jesus. Health, wealth, and awesome stuff ahead. It's a false gospel, y'all. If you believe it, the first time you the first time you pull in to the destination of devastation, you will be disenfranchised with God. Does your theology allow room for seasons of empty? And do you believe God's got a greater purpose on the other end of the empty? Job saw the greater purpose on the other end of the emptying. Look at what he said in Job 42.5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. 
What if God can use seasons of emptying to say, like, I always knew about God, I heard of him, but, like, I know him. I know him. I see him. What if our theology of having a place for seasons of emptying, for his redemptive refilling, can make Romans 8.28 real to us? Not a Christian cliche band-aid that falls off the moment the next storm comes, but something deep down in our heart rests to our soul, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Next question, do you believe God is powerful enough for his promises and purposes to prevail when the pain and hopelessness seems so deep? Do you still believe in his power when you don't see it right now in front of you? Do you still believe he's got this when it seems like life just continues in the tailspin? Do you believe God will hear and can handle the rawness of what you really want to say to him in the midst of the devastation? When you're devastated, our human tendency is to put on the mask and button up the shirt and to walk out and say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I got this. Sometimes we even do that with God. But here's the deal. He knows. (laughs) Are you willing to join the likes of Jeremiah and Job and the psalmist and bring the rawness before him? And in the place of the rawness, can that be one of the places that you find God so, so near to you? And last one. Do you believe with fresh faith the warm light of the chesed of God, his faithful loving kindness, can shine into your dark, devastated heart through this study the rest of this month?